the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Welcome back, everybody. It's almost Halloween time. I know. You know, we always try to squeeze in as much as we can for October, but we also have uh, the most episodes recorded in October. Yeah. But I'm always excited because we don't do a ton of horror movies on the podcast, but um, so I love when October hits. It was really fun to come out of The Ring, which we released earlier this month, and go directly into Poltergeist. It's been fun revisiting this movie. I almost want to say I see Poltergeist in this whole new light now. It's always been a movie right? that I've yeah. liked, but I honestly, these last few weeks, I've watched this thing like three or four times, and man, I just see it totally differently. I feel like this is a fantastic movie, and we're going to get into so much stuff, but uh, yeah, I really like this is up there. This was like not even my top 10 favorite horror movies, and it's like made its way in after uh, these last few weeks. That's fun to know. I do agree with you that watching it now, it feels like a different movie. Not that I forgot any elements of it. I've seen it so many times in my life, but watching it now, it just was, uh, it was different. It was scarier. It was way more entertaining. And I, I mean, I've always loved it, but watching it, it was so full for a horror movie and for being, um, we'll get into, did this deserve to be a PG movie or should it have been a, a little yeah. bit harsher? Um, but it's so effective. And when I've recently asked some coworkers, have you seen or heard of Poltergeist? And all of them who are all under the age of 35 said, no, it felt like uh, that is just wrong. You should, you should have seen this movie, heard of it, something like that. So I cannot wait to get into this episode. And it's very rare that this happens with us. Um, it is the 40th anniversary of mm -hmm. Poltergeist and we actually got to see the 40th anniversary on the big screen. And I've never seen this movie on the big screen. It was really great. Yeah. I was thankful that uh, Marcus Theaters brought it to St. Louis. But uh, we got to see it last month, so it wasn't quite in the October Halloween vibes. But it was it was like a preemptive, okay, we're heading into my favorite month, my favorite time of the year. It's a movie that works really well during Halloween, but it also is a any time of year type of movie yeah. you can watch this at any moment um it's a great sleepover movie it's a good i i dare say it might be a great family horror film like yeah, you can watch this that. with pretty much any age ish yeah a couple maybe the, i don't have kids what yeah, am i talking about i don't face know face melting scene but <laughs> okay maybe not yeah. that. <laughs> that, that i think that could scar a little kid there's only one death this That's is true. a horror movie with only one death, and that is of Tweety. Who died of natural causes. At least it supposedly. seems that way. Yeah. yeah, it could have been. And it's a much more cinematic movie than I remembered, so seeing it on the big screen really made me appreciate this movie even more. I, I can't say what were my top 10 favorite horror movies of all time, but the rewatchability level on Poltergeist is way up there. I don't know how many times I've I've actually enjoyed rewatching it yeah. and gotten sidetracked while taking notes and researching because I'm just really into the movie. Well, there's a lot to talk about. First and foremost, uh, this movie has gained a lot of controversy over 
the Spielberg, Toby Hooper um, collaboration. Yeah. And so we'll <laughs> get into that. We have our own personal opinions of, of this movie after watching it so many times over the course of the last few weeks. Um, there's certainly, uh, you know, get into the state of horror in the 80s. We'll get into the writing and development of Poltergeist. Also, is the vibe or the theme of the film the most important thing? So many times we talk about themes in all of the movies that we watch, but um, Poltergeist is a little different of an animal and how you're meant to experience the story. We'll also talk about the ending. You and I talked about this off the mic that we want to... uh, it, It has kind of a double ending. And Justin, I, I think it's a it's a worthy subject to bring up. Yeah. So I'd like to get into talking about the ending. I was able to catch both of the sequels. I did not see the remake. Um, I know you watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk briefly about that. I don't have a lot of great things to say about at least the sequels, but we'll get into a little bit. I don't want to dwell on it too long and I don't want to get negative. Yeah, we'll talk about the music. Of course, we love talking about the cast. Justin and I uh, realized something upon our many views of of Poltergeist that apparently we might have feelings for Joe Beth Williams. It's a weird, it's like, um, I've established, (laughs) I've established this crush on the 1982 Joe Beth Williams. She's supposed to be 31 in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I would guess like 30 to 35, somewhere in that range. She's timeless is yeah. really what she is. She it's, is no age. It's She's uh, perfect. It's really. funny because it was something that we didn't really like bring up right away. <laughs> and then it was like kind of like started brewing, you know, after a few watches and we were both kind of like, so what about Joe Beth Williams in 1982? <laughs> like, holy cow. Just Does a, anyone ever so talk gorgeous. About this? Yeah. yeah. I know I've brought this movie up a numerous times with you, but The Big Chill, I grew up watching that movie. So yeah. it's such an adult film for a kid. And thinking back on it now, I'm like, yeah, I think I had those feelings too, but there was so much going on and so many other people in that that I feel like she's just part of this amazing cast. But in Poltergeist, she really becomes such a hero in this story. I mean, out of both of the parents in this movie, she's kind of the one that that shines. Yeah. And that, that's another thing we're going to get into is the, the family aspect of yeah. this, of this Absolutely. story. Absolutely. As always, in October, we keep our picks of the week um, also aligned with horror movies. We try to go the whole nine yards for Halloween. And we tried to stay with this ghost theme for everything for this month. And so I uh, chose White Noise, the Michael Keaton film from 2005. And uh, a lot of, you know, poltergeisty type stuff in there, especially with like static on a television. I thought it would fit nicely into this episode. I wish I could have rounded it out with another one because we've got The Ring yeah. that has that poltergeist, now White Noise. I really enjoy White Noise. I saw it a couple years ago and was surprised at how much I liked it, actually. Yeah, it's not a perfect film, but it actually is, you know, pretty decent. Yeah. Well, for my pick of the week, I went with another Toby Hooper film that predates Poltergeist, and that was the made-for-TV movie uh, coming off of another Stephen King novel, Salem's Lot from 1979. How many times do you think you've sent me the uh, gift of the little boy floating outside the window? <laughs> By my count, at least three. Oh, uh, I think I even made a post about it on Instagram one time. Yeah, I mean, it's one of, uh, I'll talk about it. It's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen in a movie. I've told you about sending me, uh, not sending me those kind of gifts before midnight, <laughs> right before I go to bed. Yeah, if anyone wants to scare the living daylights out of me, send me that Yeah. at 2 in the morning. 
better yet do that outside my window at two in the morning mm-hmm. and I'll and I'll probably like everything will come out of every orifice all at yeah. once if I see that ever in real life. I'll make a note. Yeah, thanks. Best prank for Lindsay, <laughs> levitate outside her window in full van- vampire makeup. Make sure you have like the palest white yeah. face too. Yeah, that's that's pretty important. All right. <clears throat> As always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. I'm always curious if your Murray moment will be a little, little scary for the Halloween season. I always want it to be. Yeah. I always want it to be. The, the, the desire is there, and if I had Bill Murray's phone number, I'd have more of him. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, uh, before we get into our first clip from Poltergeist... Um, Lindsay, can you give us a breakdown, your interpretation of what this movie's about? I do know that Poltergeist itself is German for noisy ghost or rumbling ghost, mm-hmm. depending on uh, where you read that definition from. I can only say that voice associated the word poltergeist with this movie. Yes. I'm curious about how widely known people knew that word prior to this movie coming out. I mean, clearly enough people because they released a gigantic Hollywood movie with that <laughs> name. So, the, you know, there had to be some uh, confidence there. Yeah, what's the the source of of that when did it um enter i don't know mainstream lexicon is that right yeah yeah well the freelings are pretty rad normal suburban family three kids loving parents with a healthy relationship and an all-american golden retriever for reasons unknown at the time supernatural forces begin to befall the family first as innocent glass breakings nonsensical chair stacking even playfully interacting with the family's youngest daughter carol ann But only a few hours into experiencing these extraordinary happenings, the malicious intent of this haunting is revealed to kidnap the youngest freeling child and bring her to the other world. These spirits, who've yet to cross over, Carol Ann gives them life, and she fulfills this desire that they can't have anymore, for she is a distraction to the real light that has come for them. But along with these many spirits is the malicious force who is preventing Carol Ann from crossing back over to her family. As the Freelings grapple with the acceptance of their daughter being kidnapped by supernatural forces and forego seeking police involvement, they enlist some parapsychology investigators who are the Freelings' best bet, yet have never experienced an occurrence as magnificent as this one. With so much rage and betrayal that lurks in the spiritual realm over the Freeling home, their quest to retrieve their beloved daughter falls upon the parents, the paranormal investigators, and a special, deeply in-touch psychic bent on helping the spirits cross over and shake Carol Ann free of the terrible presence which holds her back. It ain't going to be easy, and even when you think it's over, the mystery of why this is all happening is revealed in the film's nail-biting final minutes. I say this with all sincerity. I really like that you dug deep for this summary for this movie. Like, you could have just, you know, you weren't like, well, Justin, there was a ghost in the house. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, it really came out of thinking, you know, you and I know all of these movies that we talk about, but to know that some people have never even heard of this movie, it just, it kind of hurts deep down as, as a movie lover that this is a wonderful movie in so many ways, not just you have to love horror movies. It's yeah. just like a wonderful movie, and it, it hurts that and, some people haven't seen it. And your summary really shows that there's so much more going on in this movie, and there really is. You know, yeah. We'll get into that. We'll go to a clip from Poltergeist. We'll come back. We'll start digging in. Sounds good. There is no death. It is only a transition to a different sphere of consciousness. 
Carol Ann is not like those she's with. She is a living presence in their spiritual earthbound plane. They're attracted to the one thing about her that's different from themselves. Her life force, it is very strong. It gives off its own illumination. It is a light that implies life and memory of love and home and earthly pleasures. Something they desperately desire but can't have anymore. Right now, she's the closest thing to that. And that is a terrible distraction from the real light that has finally come for them. Do you understand me? These souls, who for whatever reason are not at rest, are also not aware that they have passed on. They're not part of consciousness as we know it. They linger in a perpetual dream state, a nightmare from which they cannot wake. Inside the spectral light is salvation, a window to the next plane. They must pass through this membrane where friends are waiting to guide them to new destinies. Carol Ann must help them cross over, and she will only hear her mother's voice. Now, we talked a lot about horror in the early 80s, where things were going. In episode 41, it was another one of our Halloween specials. Uh, We did 80s versus 90s slashers. And really, the early 80s was dominated with horror with a, a bunch of slasher movies, a bunch of great ones. I mean, we, we kind of talked about how 80, 81, 82, these have been really great years for horror movies. But as far as a mainstream Hollywood production, um, you really didn't see too many of those. Paramount started doing the Friday 13th sequels, but they still seemed like very low-budget affairs. You know, there really weren't too many big studio-produced, big-budget horror movies. Um, you know, in the 70s, we had The Exorcist. In 1980, we had The Shining, which was probably one of the more, you know, I think, like, prestigious horror movies made around that time. Yeah. Uh, Late 70s, we had Amityville Horror. So for Poltergeist to come out in 1982, it was like a nice change of pace because it was a very slick movie. It was promoted as a Steven Spielberg production, you know, and he was about as big a name as you could get as a director outside of George Lucas in 1982. Also, this idea of a ghost story wasn't something supernatural, wasn't as popular anymore. You know, it was all about a killer, you know, the killer on the prowl, uh, hunting people down. And previous, I think, ghost story movies weren't necessarily always super scary, and the effects weren't always there to... Um, really bring those stories into kind of like an intense light. You know, we had a lot of uh, early horror, you know, haunted house type movies, but nothing like the Poltergeist. And even watching it now, 40 years later, sure, some of these effects seem a little dated, but they actually still work pretty effectively, I think. You know, we'll talk about it later, but like, I think a lot of the effects in this movie, you could kind of see like influenced uh, later movies that came out, you know, three or four years after its uh, release. 
Um, really looking at 1982 and the horror movies that came out, I think Poltergeist like really it distinctively stands out as being something that was different. And also the idea of let's do a broad kind of big budget horror movie. And I don't know. And thinking of those terms, to me, it's like really no um, question why it was like a huge success, like 100 million plus at the box office. And um, outside of a few horror movies like The Exorcist, uh, you know, that horror movies, you know, they usually would make their money back and make some profit, but nothing to the extent of, you know, gigantic box office numbers. Kind of to piggyback off of that idea of coming off of The Exorcist and The Shining and even The Omen, if we're going to throw in, you know, evil possession ghost story type of things. Sometimes those movies, and I always kind of say this when talking about 70s movies, sometimes they drag a little. Doesn't mean that they're not worthy. Like, I love The Omen, but sometimes that movie's going to bore people. But it has plenty of moments of like intense, awesome action and, and, and great moments that are effective. And the story is also incredibly important in these movies too. With Poltergeist, it's not only does the action continue on throughout the movie and keep building and building and building, the heart of the film is really the story and coming out at a time when slashers are dominating the horror genre, plots kind of by the wayside. And I'm not crapping on those. I mean, I love slashers, but plot isn't really the most important point. And with Poltergeist, it's taking these elements that made these ghost and possession movies work from the 70s and early 80s, adding in a lot more creative elements, visual components, and having a story that brought you into the world. And there's really no boring elements in poltergeist at all it just keeps evolving and snowballing into something bigger and bigger as the story moves along now i totally agree and i i get to what you're saying with the movies that had like a slower pace that are still atmospheric and good mm-hmm. like the changeling atmospheric um, there it is you know, yeah. it really did it's slow paced and i do enjoy it but it is like a movie that if i had my choice between poltergeist or changeling i put on poltergeist yes. like any day yeah. of the week poltergeist um definitely borrowed thematically from a lot of these prior successful horror films you know the idea of you know the american family being um terrorized by something but a lot of times those movies were the american family traveling or something you know they're going somewhere Mm -hmm. even to harken back to you know hills have eyes or toby hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but this one for this entity to be in someone's home, which is like your safe house, you know, your your place of, of peace and where your family can thrive. And, you know, you have this all-American family in this perfect house and this perfect neighborhood and that something evil, this entity can be dwelling uh, underneath and could actually kidnap one of your children and all of a sudden your the family dynamic gets shifted and everything gets turned on its head i definitely think those ideas are borrowed from earlier horror films but i think the poltergeist really pushed an emphasis on that family dynamic and really spending a great amount of time with the family letting us get to know the house letting us get to know this neighborhood and i think that's what makes this movie so effective you know and all that starts with a a good script a lot of horror movie scripts, you know, that's an afterthought sometimes. It's yeah. like, you know, a lot of horror movies we talked about, you know, the idea was like, we got to make something. It's a low budget. You know, let's do a horror movie that, you know, they make their money back. Um, and then a lot of times with these sequels, it's just like, let's do what we did before, but we'll make it more gory. 
and Poltergeist, I think really the script is like what makes us care about this movie because we have to care about this family. We have to care about this kid when everything starts to go down. Otherwise, you're not going to have any emotional connection with the film and it's not going to be as horrifying. One quick thing I just thought of uh, when you said we've got to care about this kid. I think we talked about this in the ring that you and I both, we don't necessarily shy away from movies that have to do with an evil kid or a horror movie that deals with a kid. But you are right. Like you have to care about this child. And we totally do with Carol Ann. Even if you don't like Poltergeist 2 or 3, you still have been on this journey with Carol Ann and you care what happens to her. Yeah. And the compassion that the family has in, in losing their daughter in their own home. It really is just a, a horrible feeling to think about uh, that you've lost your daughter around where you are and your your safest place. And the idea of like your you know a child being abducted. We've seen so many movies, yeah. so yeah. many real life crime stories of this. Absolutely terrifying. I can't imagine going through anything like that. But what could almost be creepier is your child being abducted, but you can still kind of hear her and you just can't. She's in this other world that She's you talking have through the TV. no information about and you just you're, you're completely at a loss on how to solve this problem. And I think that's where we get a good structure for a movie, you know, because we we have an issue. And then in the second act, we've got to solve that issue and the third act you know, the issue gets solved in this movie, there's a fourth act yeah. where something else happens, which we'll talk about. But the story for Poltergeist didn't really start out anywhere close to what we see on screen. In 79, Steven Spielberg uh, wrote a treatment for something that was an alien kind of horror-ish movie. Um, Columbia Pictures had been after him to capitalize on the success of Close Encounters, and they wanted a sequel. So initially, this treatment was called Watch the Skies. I also heard it called Nighttime, too, and I, I can't help but think he knew that that was a working title. It's not, yeah. a, not a great title. Watch the Skies is Come on. terrible. No. So Spielberg was under contract with Universal to direct a film for them, which prohibited him from directing anything else for any other production company. So he turns over this treatment to writer John Sayles, who wrote Piranha, which Spielberg loved. Sayles turned Spielberg's treatment into a feature-length version, now retitled Night Skies, in the hopes of Toby Hooper directing. And Hooper reads the script, turns down Night Skies, but does have an idea that Spielberg should help him produce an as-yet-unwritten movie that has to do with ghosts, supernatural, versus this alien element. And even though Hooper wasn't interested in Night Skies, the script did stay in development. Uh, Spielberg kind of originally had envisioned it as a kind of like a scarier sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the script that John Sayles wrote was extremely dark and pretty creepy. I don't know if it's because Spielberg went off on a direction to start co-producing a horror movie, but somewhere in there, the script of Night Skies got a rewrite by Melissa Matheson who made it much more friendly she made the alien friendly uh the script was retitled E.T. and me and ultimately Spielberg ended up directing E.T. the same year that Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist and they were both released uh pretty close to each other According to a 1982 interview with Fangoria magazine, Toby Hooper said that he had this kind of poltergeist-like idea a good eight years before the film would ever be released. 
And for some background, Hooper had recently discovered the research book of Robert Wise, who was the director of the 1963 film The Haunting. He discovered Wise's research book for that movie after taking over Wise's old office. It's kind of baffling to me that it was just, you know, hanging out in his office. But that's what Hooper said, that this book would help develop and be a little bit of the basis for what would become Poltergeist. Now, Spielberg and Hooper were on the same page from the get-go as far as like what they wanted out of this story, a movie that was based in real-life family, human connections, but also had this very familiar supernatural element that was going to perpetrate this family and terrorize them. Um, I think Spielberg was calling the early makings of Poltergeist Land Jaws. Wouldn't that have been a fun title? I like it. (laughs) land jaws but the terror is really relentless in poltergeist like jaws bruce the shark we see him fairly frequently just like we see a lot of the spirits in poltergeist so with spielberg and hooper on the same page spielberg in the producer role goes on to hire the duo writing team michael grays and mark victor these guys didn't have too much under their belt at the time they did go on to write poltergeist too but the script they wrote for this movie spielberg wasn't too happy with it so You know, he's a pro. He just took matters into his own hands and decided to rewrite the story himself. And I think he wrote it while filming Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, what a maniac. I can't believe that. So now before we get into this controversy of who directed Poltergeist, which is if you've read anything about the making of Poltergeist, you've probably seen this printed. Um, It was a really big deal over who technically directed poltergeist because spielberg had such a heavy hand in the entire making of the movie and before we do that i just want to paint a picture of like where these two filmmakers were in their career spielberg really had a huge leap of an early career he made the movie duel which if you haven't seen one of his first movies it's pretty excellent i mean it's very minimalist it is a horror film i think um if you have seen the movie uh, joyride um it kind of borrows heavily from Duel. Then he did uh, Sugarland Express, which was sort of an adventure drama with Goldie Hawn, followed by his huge hit Jaws in 1975, which became a huge blockbuster. I think it was one of the highest grossing films of all time until Star Wars came out a few years later. He follows that up with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was another massive hit written by Spielberg from a story that he had. And after Close Encounters, he does uh, 1941, which that's a movie that, you know, it's considered a huge bomb. It's considered one of the worst movies in Spielberg's career. I honestly think if you watch it and you don't put that emphasis on it, it's kind of like a decent satire of uh, wartime. And after 1941, he kind of made that up with another, his biggest hit, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's 1981. This is like right when he's about to enter into producing Poltergeist and directing E.T. simultaneously. Hooper had a much different career. We did Texas Chainsaw Massacre as one of our early episodes. It's one of my favorite movies. It still is. Uh, Not just a horror movie, but in general, I think it's like a very landmark, visceral experience of a movie. And I do think that that movie will always be like Toby Hooper's masterpiece you know it was a, it was a distinctive voice I don't know that another director could in that place in time made that movie the way Toby Hooper did his career 
didn't really ignite the way a lot of directors careers ignite once they have like a hit horror movie a few years later he did a very low budget kind of a retread of texas chainsaw massacre called eaten alive which i didn't really care for too much it's it's a pretty mean-spirited movie and it doesn't really have um the mystique that texas chainsaw massacre has also in the uh, span of three years uh, toby hooper was removed from two projects I don't know the details of like why he was let go or why they got a new director or if he walked off the project. But uh, the first one was The Dark that came out in 1979. Uh, the next one was Venom, which came out in 1981. He did happen to do movies, though, even though he there was a setback there. Um, he directed your pick of the week, Salem's Lot. Uh, that came out in 1979. And then he did another slasher film called The Fun House, which again kind of plays on a lot of the sort of like hillbilly killer type scenario that he already used in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Eaten Alive. And that's where his career kind of stuck in that low budget horror realm. But Spielberg was a gigantic fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Spielberg was at kind of the height of his powers. I mean, he had three massive blockbuster movies. The reason why I'm bringing all this up is because the controversy of who was the main person in control of what became of Poltergeist. I definitely think that Hooper, having worked in the horror genre and understanding what scares people, he had a lot of good ideas going into Poltergeist. I do think that you have... Toby Hooper, who was a director who hadn't really had a lot of experience yet, um, he had made one fantastic movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but he's entering onto a set with a talent the size of Spielberg, is going to overshadow a project. And the more I read interviews about the controversy between who did what, a lot of people seem to really get kind of angry about this, you know, and they're like, no, Toby Hooper was a director, or someone else is like, no, it was Steven Spielberg. And there's speculation all over the place. I don't want to take too long with this. All we can do is give you our thoughts on it. And that's why I'm giving the background on these two filmmakers' careers. Because in my opinion, I feel like there's no doubt that Spielberg had a much heavier influence than was legally stated. He legally couldn't direct two movies like he was not allowed to. Um, He chose to direct E.T., but he was going back and forth on the set of Poltergeist. He was there. A lot of the times there's a lot of, you know, interviews with actors who say, no, Spielberg was here. Even Zelda Rubenstein, who plays Tangina, the psychic that comes in in the third act of Poltergeist, she said that she was on set for six days filming and that Spielberg directed her all of those six days. Toby set up the shots, Steven made adjustments, but that Spielberg directed her. And she kind of sensed, at least during the time that she was there, that maybe Hooper... While he had some creative input, his head totally wasn't in the game. And I did find another interview many, many years later, like more recent years, uh, from director John Leonetti, who was the assistant camera on Poltergeist. His brother, Matt Leonetti, was the DP. These two guys were on set every single day. And John Leonetti says, while he loves Toby Hooper and respects him and thinks that he is an incredible director, his experience was that Steven Spielberg was always meant to direct poltergeist and that from what he could tell it was almost like they had this agreement kind of that one spielberg legally he couldn't direct it and there was also a rumor of there being some type of director strike um a a shutdown and that they had this understanding that in order to avoid any type of problems 
to have this amicable understanding that Toby Hooper's name would be attached as director, Spielberg would be there assisting, but Hooper was more than happy, from what I could tell, to have the assistance from Spielberg. It didn't seem like there were many conflicts between the two, but Spielberg was considered, even by producer Frank Marshall, as the shadow director. This did oftentimes lead to confusing and contradictory instructions, but there were times that Spielberg wasn't on set and Hooper was directing. To me, it kind of feels like they had a working relationship and an understanding, and if Spielberg has a lot of creative input and Hooper is open to that, and they're working together, I don't really see the drawback necessarily. It was obvious that Spielberg wanted to direct Poltergeist the entire time. Hooper doesn't necessarily seem threatened to me, so why not just kind of let it ride? And then it just become this, I don't know, urban legend or, you know, uh, dark kind of controversy at the time. When Spielberg started producing movies around this time, you know, he's not a producer like the non-creative money guy who's coming down to the set like muscling directors to get through their day. I mean, he's a super creative filmmaker, one of the best there was at the time, and I don't see it as a negative for him shadowing Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper hadn't really worked on a huge big budget movie, so having Spielberg step in to assist and say, hey, you know, could we do something different this way? Spielberg is a really good storyteller. Credit due to Toby Hooper, but like when you watch Poltergeist, there's no denying Spielberg's influence. I mean, just the whole setup of the story, um, the shots, the beat for beat, it feels more of like a Spielberg movie. To not sidestep too far, um, there's an interview with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's talking about when he was shooting a movie with Martin Scorsese, and Spielberg came on set for the day. Scorsese was setting up a shot and when they were sitting in the chairs DiCaprio was like man this is crazy I got like two of the world's greatest filmmakers sitting here next to me and Spielberg starts saying you're blocking the actor if you do this you know with the action and what if you did this and they rearrange a shot that just goes to show it's like Spielberg walks on the Scorsese set and saying hey what do you think about this I can only imagine what it'd be like on a set of poltergeist with a soft-spoken director who doesn't speak up a lot like at least people had said hooper was we were taking a long time on this controversy but like to me personally it's just like i think both of these filmmakers came out on top the movie was a success spielberg had a huge hit as a producer he had a huge hit with et toby hooper because of the success of poltergeist was able to get a three-picture deal with canon Uh, He was able to basically have complete creative control for three movies. He did Life Force, followed by a remake of Invaders from Mars, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. I think that this controversy is worth talking about because I feel like it's just like synonymous with Poltergeist. It it just, it's the first thing a lot of times that comes up anytime you read an article, and especially now that we're, the 40th anniversary is trending. I've already seen articles pop up like, who directed Poltergeist? And I don't think that either man was shy about talking about what was happening or their relationship during filming. And Hooper was thankful and even gracious for Spielberg's involvement. But I think Spielberg tipped the scale when he did an interview and said this, that, quote, Toby isn't what you'd call a take charge kind of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd come up and say what we could do. Toby would nod in agreement, and that became the process of collaboration. 
quotes like that and talking about the collaborative process. And it's not to say that he wasn't kind of in a co-director position, but I think that that's where the problem really started and where it kind of blew up to the point that the Directors Guild of America got involved and there was an investigation into what was going on behind the scenes of Poltergeist. And two days before the film's release, Spielberg actually apologized for that comment in a printed letter in The Hollywood Reporter and Variety explaining that things had been misinterpreted and the relationship between the filmmakers was great and it really was a collaborative process. But in the end, the Directors Guild final ruling was that MGM, Poltergeist distributor, awarded Hooper $15,000 for lack of credit given to him in the promotional material. MGM really glommed on to E.T. being released at the same time as Poltergeist, and that was a great selling point. I mean, I I forget, but it was like within two weeks or something that these, I mean, this was the Spielberg summer they were promoting it as. And what a great way to do that. I mean, I think E.T. made four times the amount of money that Poltergeist did, but it ain't hurting Poltergeist's budget, you know? I mean, even growing up, I remember seeing Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. I don't remember Toby Hooper's name in any of the promotional material. So there is some merit behind this that they didn't give enough credit to Hooper. Even on an official level, he wasn't given enough credit other than his name listed as director in the movie. There is some credit here, but I think, like you said, Justin, both of these guys came out on top. I mean, yeah. this movie is wonderful. Honestly, if, if you're going to uh, put E.T. or Poltergeist in front of me, I'm going to go with Poltergeist. So I guess, you know, the collaborative process that happened uh, wins out for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree. In all honesty, like Poltergeist has just went so far up on my list of like favorite horror movies. I mean, I just feel like I'm like watching this movie in a whole different mind frame and also being older and just seeing this family dynamic that they set up in the movie and how strong it is and how strong the story it is. I couldn't agree more. And another thing that elevates Poltergeist in the horror genre, especially for 1982, is the story. And something that is kind of unusual in movies in general and for horror, uh, we already said this, like stories being so significant in a horror film, but also that for me, and I think you agree with me, Justin, that the general feel and vibe of Poltergeist is so much more important to the story than a theme or message that we talk about in so many other films on this podcast, that there's always um, a recurring theme that runs through, and it's fairly obvious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's something you have to mine out. I think if you're going to look for a theme in Poltergeist, it's only going to be something like the white American dream being a fickle myth, you know, that this is something that can be ripped out from underneath you and something that can appeal to the everyday man, the blue collar worker, the, the family of three. This is something that appeals to the masses. But overall, Poltergeist is not about that. It is unusual in a sense of the family dynamic, that that being the heart of this film, and that's what drives it. One thing that stood out to me, probably one of the biggest things as far as the family dynamic goes, is how unusually positive and strong it is. I think that that might have something to do with Spielberg's involvement. He's from uh, a, you know, quote-unquote normal setting, the honeycomb-style subdivision homes. That's how he grew up. That's what he knew. So, 
to have this representation of a family when we're so used to seeing conflicts within a family dynamic, it stands out. To have two parents who get along, who obviously have been together for many years, they have each other's back. It's it's not a uh, struggle ever between them. That, to me, kind of blew me away watching this. And it's just something that you don't really see in a lot of horror movies and movies in general, that the conflict that exists is seriously this family trying to get their daughter back, not these inner conflicts that are happening that are tearing them all apart while having this conflict. And Spielberg is credited as the story writer and co-screenwriter. And this movie to me is very much Spielberg's style of storytelling. You can see it in so many of his movies. He's not a theme-heavy filmmaker. Like, he wants a really good story and then the experience of the characters. Um, even in movies like Saving Private Ryan that he's made, uh, you know, there's there, sure there's a simple theme of, like, war is bad, but the entire movie is about these bond the experience these soldiers have with each other and i feel like it's the same thing that's in poltergeist this is about the family's experience and how they bond and deal with this poltergeist versus very heavy-handed themes that you know some movies can kind of almost get uh, caught up in and put the characters to the wayside another thing that stands out that's unusual is Normally, when you have strange occurrences like silverware being bent for no reason, glass breaking, I don't know, putting your child on the floor and some invisible force pulls them across, that you're excited by this. Jo Beth Williams' character of Diane, the mom, that she is so excited by the idea of this happening is very unusual to me and seems also like something that wouldn't be expected in a horror movie because you're along for the ride still and things don't feel terrible yet. They don't feel like Carol Ann's still there. She hasn't been kidnapped. And the beginning of this movie really sets you into the feeling of the family, what it's like to be in there. I mean, if you're like me, you're kind of wondering why... Dana, the oldest daughter, why is she always eating? What are these like little curious things about each one of these characters? You are really sitting with this family and understanding them. And so when these odd things begin happening and Diane isn't freaked out, now Steven, the dad, is kind of like, oh, I, I don't, this, this isn't rational to me. It doesn't make sense. But he's not exactly... He's not calling the police. He's not freaking yeah. out just yet. And this is an atypical setting for something that ends up where it does. I totally agree. I also like the family element of this movie is so strong, not just a horror movie, but in movies in general. I think that this is probably one of the most realistic portrayals of like a middle class American family mm -hmm. uh, that I've seen in a you know long time. And I, I like just that scene you're saying these parents are responsible, but they're also kind of free spirits. They're yeah. smoking pot. They're, you know, put their kids down to rest. They, you know, found a safe neighborhood to live in. But like you said, yeah, when weird stuff starts to happen, they're not immediately freaked out. And I also think that this is a movie that is a bit naive and is not self-referential for a horror movie. There is an innocence there of nothing bad is going to happen. This is actually exciting that weird stuff's happening in our house. It's not referencing all the creepy stuff that, you know, ghost stories and stuff is not really brought into the movie right away. Um, now, the second half of the movie, we get a lot of that. You know, we get the paranormal Ghostbuster people that come over and uh, this family doesn't go to the police. I know it sounds crazy, but it feels 
real to me because if you couldn't explain this to a police so it's like if you went to the police you'd be like okay uh they're just gonna you know i mean start questioning you like did you kill your daughter you know they already tried to ask the next door neighbor and and he looks at them like they're freaks yeah and so they you know i think that i think that the movie sets itself up in a in a very um genuine way as to why this family's staying in this house i know that it's been ridiculed you know horror movies a lot of times are ridiculed there's actually a a very hilarious Eddie Murphy scene from Delirious where he talks about horror movies and saying, you know, if it was him, he would have like, the minute that he hears a scary voice, he's like, well, we're out of here. I've watched, I was watching Poltergeist last month. I got a question. Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in the house? Y'all stay in the house too fucking long. Get the fuck out of the house. Very simple. It's a ghost in the house. Get the fuck out. <laughs> and not only did they stay in the motherfucking house and pull the guys, they invited more white people over. <laughs> Sitting around going, our daughter Carol Ann's on the television set. I would have been gone. If I had a daughter been down the precinct saying, look, man, uh, I went home and my fucking daughter's in the TV set and shit, so I just fucking left. <laughs> um, you can have all that shit. I ain't going to back, back to the motherfucking. Uh, I just came down so when she ain't up at school, you th- don't think I killed a bitch or nothing like that. But she is inside the TV set. You can have all that shit. Fuck it. Uh, Mr. Murphy, didn't you try to save your daughter? Yeah, I'm a man. I tried to save. I turned the channel. The shit didn't work. I got the fuck out. <laughs> Lee, the kid was only six years old in the movie. They couldn't have been too attached to her. <laughs> Lee, in the Amityville Horror, the ghost told them to get out the house. White people stayed in there. Now, that's a hint and a half for your ass. <laughs> a ghost say, get the fuck out. I would just tip the fuck out the door. They walked and looked in the toilet bowl, was blood in the toilet. They said, that's peculiar. <laughs> I would have been in the house and said, oh, baby, this is beautiful. We got a chandelier hanging up here, kids outside playing. It's a beautiful neighborhood. We ain't got nothing to wear. I really love them. This is really nice. Get out. Too bad we can't stay, baby. Horror movies at that point were already getting mocked in, like, big stand-up bits by Eddie Murphy there's a very innocent feel to this movie but I think that what makes you care about this movie the most is the family dynamic and I do think that Spielberg and Hooper did a great job of spending a large portion of this movie with the family keeping them in the house keeping them together and even in the quiet moments you know the quiet moments where the younger son is talking about well what if he could die and he could help Carol Ann and he could go to the other side and they're all hanging out in the living room and it's very quiet and it's late at night and you can tell they're all exhausted and they really take their time with that scene it's like a five minute scene and they're explaining to him like well it doesn't work that way and she kind of starts talking about um, the idea of what an afterlife could be and then you know they all say their goodnights and they say goodnight to the television that has Carol Ann stuck in there and it's a really wonderful scene and there's also you know the relationship between the the parents Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams there's multiple times where the movie does take its time to show how much they love each other how much they care about their daughter and how much of a struggle this really is that they need to work together and he's kind of effing up at his job because he's spending you know all this time dedicated to trying to figure out how they can deal with the situation that as far as they're concerned has never happened to anybody this is like kind of like outside the realm of of normalcy here on solutions for a movie that could be considered a haunted house movie it doesn't rely on 
your typical creaks in the floor, bumps in the night, like that sort of thing. It really preys on your emotions uh, that you have for the Freelings. And that's why the setup for getting involved with a family and really caring for them, why it's so important. Then also playing on what the audience already knows about supernatural lore and that, that, that sort of thing that's passed down by generations. We're already like scared for them you know and so that's why it uh it becomes even more impactful once carol ann disappears and it just keeps gaining traction that's why i think it's so interesting that they made the choice to wrap up the movie really nicely by saving carol ann and the parents are the heroes this you house know, is clean yeah they're gonna they're you know they're <laughs> gonna pack up they're gonna move out they're done with this neighborhood they're done with everything we found out that potentially this uh, all these houses were built on um, an old grave site you know that comes into play in a little bit here in what I feel is the fourth act of this movie and I just think it's like a wild turn to wrap up a movie so nicely as an audience you know we're happy I was very satisfied it had been a long time since I'd seen this I was like oh man I thought that there was more to this movie and it's wrapped up so nicely. And then you get the whole big shot, the sunny day. They're going to stay one more night in this house. And then we enter into the fourth act of this movie, which I think is like a really wild decision. But they go so crazy with it that it works and it's entertaining. Um, and then, you know, we start the fourth act with um, what kicked off our fascination with Joe Beth Williams because I almost feel like we're getting more of a exploitive horror movie. <laughs> like she's getting into this sort of big bathtub. Like it kind of looks like a hot tub. Didn't you say that like, well, this was obviously when Spielberg wasn't on set. Yeah, filming. yeah. This is definitely like Spielberg's not really good at directing sensuous scenes with female characters. It almost kind of goes into this like, and where I feel like Nightmare on Elm Street borrowed from this movie because we get kind of a very Nightmare on Elm Street vibe totally. with her being in the bathtub and then the room spins upside down. And for about five minutes, we get pure terror. Like this entity is like pissed off now. We're seeing stuff that we hadn't seen before. It's trying to take Joe Beth Williams. It's trying to take both of the kids again. All hell breaks loose. Even though all this is happening, it still goes back to this mom, this dad want to protect their family. They're going to go in and they're going to battle this thing once again. Then we get the big reveal that there were bodies actually underneath this house and that this neighborhood is on a burial ground. And, you know, these are the potentially the angry spirits that are stuck in the afterlife. But there's also this other evil entity. You move the headstones, yeah. but you didn't move yeah. the bodies. And, uh... And so then we get, you know, we get this um, kind of very, like very elaborate, essentially like a like a 15 minute action sequence. It's staying with the same idea of like protecting the family. Finally, it has another nice wrap up. And I think this movie uses uh, just a dash of humor throughout the movie that that I really, really like. Yes. And I think it has a fantastic ending of they're all safe. They go into the hotel room. The camera's just holding for it's a little bit. It's like a bit. long walk yeah. down. Like, they they look downtrodden. Yeah. They're friggin' yeah. tired. And, the, you know, they get into the the hotel, and you're just, the camera's just kind of hanging there, and then you see Craig T. Nelson push the television out into the, into the uh, walkway and then shut the door. I get a little chuckle there every single time. I just think it's a great, it's a little wink at the camera of, like, this is over. This is officially over. You know, we, we the, the end credits are going to start. 
on my first rewatch, I was started to text you and I was like, did it need this extra 20 minutes? Like yeah, yeah. I really felt satisfied with the hero parents and you know, the sunny day ending. But the more I thought about it and the more I watched it, I, I really came around to this fourth act. And I really think it's worth the ride. I think it puts us, the audience through the ringer one last time in a more effective way. And especially cause the movie kind of had taken its time so much. And the, the pace of this fourth act is like double time, you know, it, it really packs a lot in there. I really feel like it was, it was the best choice. It does stretch out the runtime like longer than when it comes to horror movies. What, what my, my sweet spot about 97, 98 minutes. Yeah. This, you don't we're, go into the one we're, hour. We're 40. looking. We're look, yeah. When I if this is an hour and fifty four <laughs> minutes, like if I saw a horror movie now and I saw a runtime of like one hour fifty four minutes, I'd be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I've always been on board with this ending. I love it. I also like that for the time. It's not just the, you know, like in Scream, you've got to watch out because the killer's always going to come back for one final. Um, so often we got accustomed to that to the point that it became a parody of, of one final quick thing that you weren't prepared for. This, like you said, is 18 minutes of sheer terror, so it doesn't feel like it's just one more thing added in. It feels like, I mean, there's a lot of time spent here, and it's very intense and emotional, too. I mean, you've got Joe Beth Williams, like, trying to not get sucked into the closet and, like, while everyone is being like not touching the floor and hanging on to the wall, like trying to like drag her children out of this room. It is an intense scene. Craig T. Nelson coming home and just grabbing his head like, Whoa, this is happening again. It's the, the terror is not over. You still are in that emotional spot with this family. Also the uniqueness for 1982 to have this double ending, I think by, today's standards the double ending is expected that final thing that you didn't see coming the sixth sense ending that totally blows your mind this one though i mean i could see how having the sunny day ending would be nice and i feel like spielberg would have been critiqued in in a negative way had he and hooper decided to end it with that now i absolutely adore the family long walk um to the hotel room like i wish i had a film still of that like a really good one i've looked for it (laughs) it doesn't exist um i love that ending but that it has this fourth act this double ending i i wouldn't want it any other way and i do think that it going into this fourth act is why it's ripe for jokes from eddie murphy because there is the uh (laughs) Why on earth would you spend one more night in the South? Yes. Wouldn't you just all go to a hotel after your daughter gets, you just got her out of the television, you know, um, do you want a chance that this is going to happen again? Play it safe and let's just, let's just go. We'll, we'll move our stuff out during the daytime. Like, but you know, it makes for a good fourth act, but that's the only time where the family aspect of it seems unrealistic. You know, that this family wouldn't say after all this happened, let's, Let's just, let's not stay here. Yeah, I feel like everyone but Carol Ann, probably, yeah. who doesn't, Carol Ann doesn't remember yeah. anything. I feel like everybody else uh, would be, like, ready to hightail it out of But I think to Eddie Murphy's point, that's the kind of stuff that white people do. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not wrong. Yeah. Well, let's take a little break. We'll go to another clip from Poltergeist. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast. 
the effects, the music, and those sequels. Are you with us now? Can you, can you say hello to Daddy? It's not mommy. Is it Dr. Lesh? Who's with you, baby? Who's with you? God, oh my God, my baby. No. Bastard, she took the baby! Help her, help her. Can't you hear what's happening? Help her. to animals and cast we usually save the animals for last the animal talk always comes last but i think because the dog in the family ebuzz kicks this movie off uh, already a movie that i enjoy when it opens with a dog checking on everybody in the house and stealing um, food and stealing food and then protecting the family mm-hmm. uh, while they're all like starting to nod off at night you're already winning my heart over with the opening <laughs> of this movie the other thing is is that as many horror movies do 
the dog usually gets it in the end or some part in the movie and uh, eBuzz makes it all the way through the film so if you're like us and anytime you see a dog in the movie or a cat you're just like man are they going to kill the cat in this movie and uh, eBuzz makes it all the way through that's the one spoiler for me like let me know does the animal die in this movie well we already ruined it that the only thing that dies in this movie is the bird yeah. Tweety but we don't see that death you yeah. know it just it just and, is and uh also, too, like having this sort of like big golden retriever, I think, uh, adds to this idea of the stereotypical family that has, you know, the nice house, the nice yard, safe neighborhood, big golden retriever dog. I don't know if you read this, Justin, but that his name, Ebuzz, this is for some some deep SNL trivia nerds, but um, that Apparently, there's there's a rumor that since uh, Spielberg was friends with Dan Aykroyd and was a fan of SNL, that Ebuzz was named after. I definitely remember this character, um, Ebuzz Miller, who was a Dan Aykroyd character who did art classics, and he was a real scuzz bucket that just liked to point out the nipples on uh, classic paintings. It's a, I mean, it's a kind of <laughs> classic sketch, but. Um, rumored to be where right. this dog I was named it. yeah i kind of believe it too we're front loading this discussion with ebuzz really yeah. great performance <laughs> by this uh, dog in this movie so when i was watching this movie for the very first rewatch when we started researching this episode my first impression of the cast of this movie was sort of this is like a very tv movie cast you know the look and the feel the very hmm. kind of plain and as the movie went on I kind of felt like no these, you know it's, it's a really well acted movie when I you know looked up the cast they I mean they all went on to do it was like a lot of tv movie stuff and I think the beginning of the movie does have like a kind of like a tv movie vibe just the all-american plain mm-hmm. family sure. but it doesn't feel like a tv movie because there's an it's elevated by the performances uh specifically Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams. And as we mentioned earlier, Joe Beth Williams, I think they kind of start her off kind of plain. And then as the movie progresses, you're like, Joe Beth Williams should be like like a Julia Roberts, a gorgeous A-list movie star. But we're starting a Joe Beth Williams fan club. Yeah, in, yeah. I in think like I think we're like, you know, really like we're, we're starting this that. like Joe Beth Williams rally. And yeah. so let's let's talk about Joe Beth Williams for a yeah. little bit. The beginning with Ebuzz that you've already described, when we get to, I think she's the second one we get to. First we see Craig T. Nelson, and then we get to Joe Beth Williams. She's the first out of all of the family whose face we see more than anyone else's until we get to Carol Ann. And I didn't really notice this until probably the third time through. And to me, that said, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it said, these are going to be the two main characters. This is who we're going to focus on. And really, Diane Freeling is who we focus on in the movie. She is, if you're going to have a hero, it is this mother character. And I venture to say that there aren't too many mom characters who aren't relegated to, I don't know, kind of a throwaway character that don't have some sense of heroism about them but she does and whether it starts out with her fascination with this weird paranormal activity that's happening in her house that she's not scared by it that she's confronting it and every time she's faced with something that's happening in her house I mean the woman is friggin brave I would say even more than her husband She's never running away. She's always running towards. She's even curiously, when when she knows 
that Robbie and Carol Ann's room, that there is just some awful shit happening behind that closed door. She just tries it just to see what happens. And then it's like, okay, yep, you're right. I should just back off, wait for this to happen. She really is a character that you're not really expecting to be the centerpiece of the movie, but she really is. Now, you make a great point with the fact that they really don't show her in hysterics like you would a normal female character, especially yeah. around this time. Um, she c- certainly gets upset, you yeah, know, but when understandably. She, she falls into the swimming pool with all the skeletons, she gets upset, but then immediately tells the neighbors, like, we have to go in there. And she's like ordering them, like, we got to go in there and we got to find the kids they are upstairs. And like you said, running toward the problem and really is a centerpiece of this whole movie. I mean, I know that the the focus is on Carol Ann, but we don't really see her through most of the movie. We see this mother who's like strong, caring, charismatic, kind of like that idealistic mom who's like smoking pot, but is like kind of funny, is uh, very charming, really caring with her kids and... But she's also, a cool mom. Yeah, she's cool and compassionate. And mm-hmm. I think that they give her a lot of scenes where she really shines in this, uh, the scene where whenever she's tying on the rope to like, decides I got to be the person that's going to get, have to go into the closet and get sucked into the light. And when she's uh, noticing the paranormal activity and she's like all excited about putting her daughter on the floor and having her get pushed through. <laughs> all these scenes, I think with like the wrong presence could kind of fall flat or just kind of feel generic and you know not to keep going on about it but also this seeming like a very plain type person and then like this final act where not we're not getting creepy here on the on the (laughs) episode but like you know joe beth williams is a very gorgeous actor and like i feel like you didn't see that in the beginning of the movie and then like wow where'd you come from you know Mm-hmm. But then when you go back and you watch the movie, you're like, no, she was gorgeous. To the she whole was gorgeous movie. the whole time. I don't know. It's it's strange. I don't know why that they would make this transition. I, I think, again, just trying to get this sort of, we're going to do like a normal horror movie now where we show like a beautiful woman like taking a bath or something and then scary stuff starts to happen. But not objectifying her in any way. No, it's just not, like yeah, very not, like normal. Yeah. You know, another thing that I just thought of is that as a mom um, in a movie, oftentimes parents or authority figures will talk down to kids. And then just thinking about the scene where there's the chair stacking on the table and Carol Ann's sitting there, she asks Carol Ann as a peer, as as her child that she respects and trusts her opinion, TV people, is that who that was? Like she doesn't talk down to her kids. And I think that that's also something that is unusual um, a lot in movies of this time. I think, too, the way she, her and her husband interact, we have them in the bedroom several times, like having what feel like very genuine spousal conversation, you yeah. know, where it's like nothing too uh, important, but you do get a sense of their um, closeness. You know, they're like hanging out, smoking pot. The smoking pot happens one time. Well, they're stoned again in another scene. Oh, yeah, when they yeah, see they the don't neighbor. Show, you don't see them smoke yeah. pot, but That's they're, true. Not, they're That's not big true. stoners of the whole movie, but there's two times. <laughs> That's true. They, they, there's two times where they're getting stoned and silly. They have a good yeah. relationship, and Craig T. Nelson is someone who I always have liked. I really liked that show Coach that he was on I did back too. in the day. Definitely. And he does have a dad look, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of the starting to go bald, but still fit, still very active, can be very authoritative, but at the same time, 
you know, shake your hand and have a beer with this guy. I don't know. I think he turns in like a really nice performance here. And to me, I would put the these Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson on, you know, if there was a list of like greatest parents in movies, they, yes. they would be on it with their performances in this movie. There's so many scenes I can think of with Craig T. Nelson where, um, where he's um, tucking Robbie into bed and Robbie's scared of the thunderstorm that's happening and he checks on Dana, the oldest, and opens the door and she's obviously on the phone and is just like, good night, Dana. Shuts the door, waits like three beats. Get off the phone, Dana. I'm like, that was my father right there. That's hilarious. Um, I love that scene. Another scene between Diane and Steven that it's about the performance, but it's also about including something like this intimate moment in a script is right before the fourth act of the film when we think everything is fine and the Freelings are moving out of their house and he says, I got to go take care of some stuff at work. You know, are you good here getting stuff packed up? They both mouth the words, I love you, back to each other. And it's such an intimate moment and something that you don't really see in movies and something that happens in real life when you have been through something intense with someone and you're like are you okay yeah i'm okay we made it through this together just i don't know it's such a small moment and i i don't know are you affected by that or am i kind oh, yeah. of yeah no when they craig t nelson and joe beth williams have the embrace before you know when he's got the rope tied around their waist oh yeah yeah there's like some real emotion there again something that you don't necessarily see always in a horror movie you know there's always so much screaming and like someone getting chased and in this one they have a moment together that feels very real and feels very uh loving you know and then it makes you really want her to come back yeah at the end of the you know yeah. come back on the other come back out on the other side unharmed yeah their dynamic together is really wonderful i posted a little video clip on my instagram and a friend of ours commented, um, Ellie, one of our listeners, she commented about this couple and saying that, that there should be some type of grown and sexy movie list where committed adults over 30 are actually into each other and likened the Adams Family being another one of those. Just, you know, protagonists that have been together a long time are on the same team and just like have a happy, comfy life together. It just really is something that is not really seen in movies that much yeah you usually see the parents with kids and their husband and wife are disinterested in each other because they've they're just always tired because they have kids yeah and i think i made an argument i don't know if it was on this podcast or in normal life but you know who wants to see um a movie that doesn't have conflict in it who wants to see couples that get along but i mean i don't know i think i wasn't thinking the right the right way because there's conflict in this movie but Mm -hmm. the the two parents are wonderful together and have a great relationship and it makes the movie that much stronger and when it doesn't have like such a saccharine vibe to yeah and a lot of times a lot of that sugary coating could be introduced by children in movies but i don't think that that happens with this one dominique dunn who plays dana oliver robbins robbie and heather o'rourke Uh, Of course, Carol Ann. I don't think that any of these kids introduce a feeling that feels inauthentic. They really do feel like they're siblings. We only see them together a a couple times, like those three specifically. But there's never a moment that it doesn't feel like they're part of the family unit, that their parts are just thrown in to emotionally manipulate the audience. It just feels legit. 
And Heather O'Rourke is an interesting choice for this movie, I think, because everybody in this movie looks very plain, you know, and they kind of, and that's what I like about it. I like that the other two kids in this family aren't like supermodels, you know, and Heather O'Rourke is the only one in this family that, that, that looks like she was like adopted almost. She's like <laughs> this like picture perfect blonde hair blue-eyed like angel child they were looking for someone yeah, who it, had an it, angel it looks, vibe it looks very specific it looks yeah. like a casting director like we got to put the you know it's like a very macaulay culkin yeah you know this yes. person has exactly. the face should be in front of a camera it works for this movie though because you do it, it she just her presence seems like some that would you know this other world would be like this is like an angel child we're gonna bring her into you know our world there's something unique about her she looks different from her family and we only see her for a little brief moment before she gets sucked into the other world so you know she's not in the movie very much other than you know we hear her voice and her like calling out to her parents but she does have this look and presence that i can understand why spielberg was like yeah she's who we need you know she think like sitting at a picnic table outside one of the studios because one of her other family members was like doing an audition and then you know got picked out of a crowd kind of thing and all of a sudden she's like one of the leads in a gigantic Hollywood movie. I also heard that Drew Barrymore was up for this part too, but didn't look angelic enough. Yeah. And she got used in E.T., so it worked out for everybody. And Heather O'Rourke kind of does all the, uh, she pulls all the weight in Poltergeist 3, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The other four main actors which round out the cast uh, would be what we kind of lovingly call the the Ghostbusters, uh, Beatrice Strait playing Dr. Lesh, Richard Lawson and Martin Casella. And then coming in in the third act, Zelda Rubinstein as Tangina, the psychic who really facilitates getting Carol Ann back from the other world. Fun story I found out about her was that after auditioning four times, it was her pre existing psychic ability which helped her land this role. That's pretty wild. It's pretty crazy. And Zelda Rubinstein, I remember she was one of the reasons that I stuck with the show Picket Fences because she was on that show and I loved her from Poltergeist. I mean, Tom Skerritt was in Picket Fences. Plenty of reasons. Always a delight to see her. I like that she appears in two and three, but there's kind of nothing like her role in this first one. And this initial trio, the Ghostbusters crew that we have here, they're really put through the ringer. And there's not one bit of me that doesn't believe them in this setting. I love that they all kind of enter feeling like they've seen a lot, you know, from the paranormal world and then all kind of have their asses handed to them after being in the Freeling home. There's also um, just a shout out to James Karen, who plays uh, Craig T. Nelson's like a-hole boss. He's a sort of this like veteran character actor who's done a lot of genre work. He was in uh, Return of the Living Dead Part 1 and 2, and he also appeared in Toby Hooper's invaders from mars and he also uh made a two episode guest appearance on coach so him and craig t nelson got to work together again re-teamed all right now to kind of lead us briefly into a little bit of the production of poltergeist uh, we always have this conversation on so many episodes of this podcast about our love of practical effects and how a lot of them appear in so many horror movies Um, This movie was very different. This movie has a ton of effects work that was done by Industrial Light and Magic, which was pretty much like the standard for like special effects heavy movies like Star Wars, Jurassic Park, 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters 2, you name it. And they were behind a lot of the FX work in Poltergeist. There is some practical effects, and, you know, uh, I think they're pretty obvious in this movie because the rest is pretty heavy. But, uh, you know, you mentioned off the mic to me about how you don't really think of Poltergeist is a real big effects heavy movie and I was totally right there with you and then as we started talking about the movie and I was watching it more I was like god there's like a ton ton of visual effects in this movie and pretty effective one and and I think some of it feels a little dated I think I said that before but like I think it works with the the vibe of this movie and normally horror movies go for a less is more style because they don't have a big budget for effects, but this movie was the opposite. And so that way we're getting rooms where all these toys and gadgets are floating through the air and, you know, gigantic heads are shooting out of doors and, uh, you know, screaming at actors. I think initially we have that less is more. One of the creepiest things to me before everything goes to hell is when Diane sees Ebuzz come into her bedroom and start like sits on his hind legs drops a toy and is like staring at the wall as if he's communicating with something that's that would freak me out i'd want to get the hell out of my house as quickly as possible they do go with that less is more in the beginning and then yeah when everything goes wild i guess beginning really with the tree trying to eat robbie outside that serves as the distraction so this other world can suck Carol Ann into the closet. The tree's pretty intense and pretty terrifying. To me, I don't really feel like even the animation and the puppetry aspects, it doesn't feel, I mean, I get the dated aspect a little bit, but in so many ways, when practical effects are used and even the animation, whether it's the ghost hand coming out of the TV, it feels like, because I don't know what a ghost hand really looks like coming out of a TV, I don't know what, uh, yeah, this giant head coming out of a closet or this freaky creature that Diane sees and screams at. It feels like it's really there. And I know that maybe 2022, it would uh, it would definitely look different. But I don't know. Um, there's just something real that happens that, that, that feels more tangible than nowadays and I, yeah I'll, I'll i'll stop my uh high horse on practical and animation effects uh, of the 80s but <laughs> and really and really you know in 2022 there's so many tv shows and movies that have like terrible cgi i still think this looks better than a, a lot of stuff that is totally modern and even when modern things do use practical effects i'm all on board i mean it looks it looks wonderful but those things also wouldn't exist without things like poltergeist and i I do love like the mixed mixed media effects that they use in poltergeist you know whether it be computer generated or practical and uh, certainly the biggest practical effect that is probably one of the most terrifyingly creepy parts of the movie is the dude thinking that his face is melting off into the sink really kind of pushes the boundaries of a PG movie. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was the scene that I'd kind of forgotten about. And when I was settled in to watch this uh, on my first rewatch, I was kind of shocked by that one. That one, I think, uh, puts it over the edge. Like, I don't know, kids under 10. Like, yeah. But, but then again, there's a face-melting scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. For me, the face-melting's pretty terrible. The maggot meat's pretty awful. But in the fourth act... When Diane and Robbie and Carol Ann are getting sucked into the closet again, 
That weird vaginal closet portal, it's absolutely terrifying to me. And it was probably all of these weird lighting effects and some cotton balls that were somehow put in there. But it it, it works. I mean, it's so beautiful in a way and terrifying, but it is, um, it's, it's absolutely, I don't know, perfect. I, yeah, and watching it on the small screen, I didn't notice it as much, but when we went and saw it in the theater, mm-hmm. uh, man, lots of strobing in this movie, like really almost almost kind of like blinding at times. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like I was like watching a, like a band play with like a strobe light just yeah. like blasting my eyeballs. Spielberg said that the, the, the closet light specifically needed to feel like it was alive, needed to be an entity. It couldn't just look like there were strobe lights and that was that was it. He said that there were Vegas-style spotlights, strobes. I think he also said fish tank lights to give this diffusion element on top of, you know, smoke and wind machine. Everything kind of coordinated together to pull off one effect to make it look like this wasn't just some light bulbs being shot in different yeah. directions to throw you off. And it, and it does, it is extremely effective. No, I, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, kind of maybe going into like scenes that we really love, mm-hmm. uh, going back to that tree sequence, man, that still holds up. It's truly effective. That whole sequence shot by shot is fantastic. Very intense. And when he's the kids, like almost get, it looks like the trees, like trying to digest him and the, Joe Beth Williams is like screaming toward him and oh god and you as the viewer know that it's a distraction element because you're watching Carol yeah. Ann sit in her bed watching her room get sucked into the yeah. closet and it's trying a very, to take her yeah it's a very good uh that that whole sequence is is very great because it it sets up a, a real reason why um the family's distracted for Carol Ann getting like sucked into the closet and then we have this like pretty terrifying sequence where the family's like they're searching for carol ann and then joe beth williams says you know she hears carol carol ann she's so happy and she's like oh and then she's like wait a minute where is she and the little kids try and tell her like no she's like she's in a television yeah um yeah just the the sequence of events are so great that scene too when diane comes to robbie and is like what where is she where is she and the silhouette of their face against the television and how both their faces slowly turn to face the tv as carol ann's voice emanates from the television i mean that is a gorgeous shot i love it similar to the poster of the movie of carol ann right in front of the tv i mean it's it's iconic one other uh iconic thing that i don't know i mean it had to have been spielberg um because we saw it in jaws everybody knows the the push-pull effect of when Chief Brody sees that little Kittner boy get eaten by Bruce. That happens in Poltergeist. And boy, is that shot effective. It's right after when you talked about Diane being in the mud with all these skeletons that are coming up and her useless neighbors aren't helping her and she's running right towards the action of where her kids are about to be sucked into another world she runs up the stairs and sees what's happening at the end of the hallway and it's that same push-pull camera effect where it feels like everything is so far away and everything depends on you but you gotta you gotta get there you gotta go there's no other option 
And so many moments that I, when I was watching this thinking like, man, other movies like really borrowed from Poltergeist, whether it be Lost Boys with the maggots or the pink slime Ghostbusters, the room rotating like Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, you could see its effect on even things like The Conjuring or yeah. Insidious. You know, all of these movies that people love now, they cherry picked some elements from yeah. Poltergeist. And another element of this movie that I think keeps it well-rounded and also in that sort of like prestigious bubble of big Hollywood movies is uh, the Jerry Goldsmith score. It's kind of funny, like when I was kind of like digging around and it almost kind of seemed like at the time Spielberg was like, John Williams is the guy that I use for my movies. Like we have this working relationship (laughs) when I'm producing the first few movies I produce, you guys can have someone that has some essence of John Williams um, but uh, you can't take the person that I use. So Jerry Goldsmith <laughs> scored uh, Poltergeist and Gremlins. Jerry Goldsmith is fantastic. I love the Burb score. I could like listen to it all day long. Gremlin score is yeah, wonderful. It's amazing. And I think the score to Poltergeist right away gives us this feeling of like, man, this is like a big, huge movie with like this classic big score that we're you know starting to become familiar with Spielberg-related films. So Poltergeist was released to a lot of critical acclaim. It was a box office success. I really love the marketing in this movie, like the poster with her hands on the TV. It's just like this classic poster that's lasted so many years. It still like holds up and uh, the tagline, they're here, you know, made its way into pop culture. I was kind of surprised to see that Poltergeist was only the eighth highest grossing movie of 1982. Um, Because it grossed like $120 million. And I know, you know, movies didn't gross a ton like back then. I know E.T. was number one. But uh, what what were the other ones on this list here for the top 10 highest grossing movies of 1982? Like kind of give me a layout here. Well, number 10 was Annie. Uh, Number nine, love this movie. I think it was one of my picks of the week. Uh, Best Little Horror House in Texas with Dolly Parton. Number eight, Poltergeist. Before that, 48 Hours. Number six, Star Trek Three: The Wrath of Khan. How about this? Number five, Justin, Porky's. Insane. Right? Number four, Rocky Three. I could see that. Yeah. Number three, An Officer and a Gentleman. All right, I yeah. Mean, I remember that being a huge one. Yeah. Give me some Deborah Winger all day long. Number two, Tootsie. Didn't wow. see that one coming, did no. you? No. And number one... The film that was released at the same time as Poltergeist, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. It really was a Spielberg summer. It sure That's was. That's a very like wildly diverse list of movies for yeah. top grossing movies. Yeah. I kind of love it, though. And only one or two sequels in there, I guess, for 1982. That's true. Yeah. So different than 89. Yeah. It's like all sequels almost. Yeah. And although it was just the eighth highest grossing film of the year, I mean... Although it was just, I mean, it was the eighth highest grossing. That's nothing to sneeze at. For a horror movie, it's pretty cool that it was nominated for a few Oscars. Best visual effects, sound effects, and best music. So that's pretty cool. Um, It didn't win any of those, but it did win a BAFTA award for best visual effects. It also won three Saturn Awards for best horror film, best supporting actress for Zelda Rubinstein, and best makeup. I mean, it was nominated for uh, quite a few yeah. other awards uh, across the board that year. So that's pretty cool for a horror movie. So wasn't it uh, Gandhi that swept the Academy Awards that year? 
It was for the 1983 Academy Awards for the year after. Yes, Gandhi's won for Best Picture, Best Director, Actor, Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume, and Editing. Not to mention being nominated for other awards. I mean, whenever they talk about like now nowadays being yeah. like, oh, it's such a ringer that this movie won all the awards. I mean, let's look back to 1982, shall we? When Gandhi was clearly Clearly, that was rigged. Yeah. I mean, Ben Kingsley's pretty wonderful. Sure. And Richard Attenborough's, yeah. How many people are talking talented. about the uh, 40th anniversary of Gandhi? You know? Uh, uh, how many How many times have you ever heard anyone talk about the movie Gandhi? I think my mom was probably the last one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know yeah. how recently, though, that was. Yeah. So to kind of close things out on Poltergeist... Usually when we do these movies, especially if it's horror movies, I try to watch any sequels attached. I try to go through, and sometimes it's a lot of work because there's a lot of sequel horror movie sequels. There was only two sequels to Poltergeist, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, and then Poltergeist 3. I watched both of those this week. I remembered nothing about either of those movies, so it was like kind of watching them fresh. I kind of appreciated the fact that they brought back some of the cast from Poltergeist 1, it seemed kind of un- an, an unnecessary sequel and kind of was like all over the place. Though dated, I do think that Brace's scene was pretty freaky. I was fully prepared to hate Poltergeist 3 because I do remember everyone saying that movie sucks so bad. I actually liked Poltergeist 3 more than Poltergeist 2 simply because it felt real contained like Poltergeist 1 was. And it, I think it relied heavily on weird stuff and jump scares, but got me a couple times it just felt like it was really fast it was like here's some creepy stuff that's happening there's a bunch of like weird mirror trickery um i didn't mind it we've got tom scarrett we've got laura flynn boyle heather o'rourke was back and i thought she kind of carried that movie and did a pretty good job i uh didn't have time to watch the remake um you weren't really selling me on it so i didn't feel like it was something that i should cram in at the last minute because i was trying to get everything prepared so I'm sorry if you're a big fan of the remake. I I failed to watch that one for this episode, but I've heard nothing but terrible things about (laughs) it and how it's just like just a completely bad remake as far as remakes go for horror movie classics of the 80s. It's up there for me with Fright Night and Nightmare on Elm Street is not one of my favorite remakes. How How did you feel about the sequels for Poltergeist? So Poltergeist 2, it had been a really long time uh, since I'd seen that. I've definitely seen three way more times than the second one. And I think for two, if it didn't have almost all of the Freeling family in it, minus Dana, I don't think I would have cared. However, I will say that you introduce that creepy old man in a black suit and that weird Amish black rim hat always going to forever haunt my dreams too uh, that a different actor playing the same character is in three totally creepy I don't like that stay out of my yard I don't want you talking to me or my children you're very terrifying but um, I'm with the Freeling family through the whole thing I feel like two was trying to be a little bit more of a fleshed out involved deep story 
than it really needed to be. The braces scene, yes, completely freaky. It, it just didn't work the same for me as, as the first one. However, I cared about the Freelings because of the first one. Um, and it's no fault of any of the actors or, or anything to do with the movie. I just think the story kind of fell short in comparison to the first one. The third one, I would watch that for creepy elements over the second one. However, three would be nothing if it didn't involve mirrors in almost every scene. But Tom Skerritt, love him. Nancy Allen, grossly underused in this movie. Yeah, as she is in most movies, I yeah. feel. Yeah, great, great actor. But yeah, not used well in this movie. Uh, but it is nice to see Lara Flynn Boyle um, in an in a earlier role. As much as I think the tall, thin, creepy old guy is mm-hmm. effective in Poltergeist 2 and 3, I feel like it's, I don't know, when I was watching him, I just feel like it was like really ripping off Phantasm, like the tall man in Phantasm. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll admit something, though. I, until we went and saw Phantasm in the theater, I think that I'd seen it before. Sure. But yeah. I, I don't think it wasn't a movie that ever made a mark on me. But that frail old man yeah, certainly scared the living Jesus out of me. He is creepy. I'll give it that. He's creepier in two than he is three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's stop there. We'll come back. We've got a uh, somewhat of a controversial final thought for Poltergeist, so stick around. But let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay... Tell me about Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot. How many Stephen King movie adaptations have we talked about on this podcast? We're working on all of them. Yeah, we're going to work our way through, but (laughs) tell me about Salem's Lot. It had been a minute since I had last seen Salem's Lot. This TV movie gave future Poltergeist director Toby Hooper his first multi-million dollar movie experience. Salem's Lot is a slow burn at first, but boy, is it worthy of the action we end up getting. Justin always talks about his picks of the week as being the perfect movie for a weekend afternoon. And I'm finally throwing in a contender. But put on Salem's Lot when you have like three loads of laundry to do, because it is a story with a ton of worthy exposition but followed by nonstop juicy vampiric action and drama. It's nearly impossible to fit in all the details and subplots from the Stephen King novel into a cohesive movie, so some liberties were taken. Probably the most noticeable difference, if you've read the book, is the combining of characters, which isn't really a big deal. That happens all the time in movies. If anyway, it's a way to wrap as much of the story as possible into the movie while not becoming confusing. Even King thought the film's teleplay writer, Paul Monash, was successful at combining the characters, and Monash had previously adapted King's novel Carrie for the screen, too. This is a small-town story, full of nosy Nellies, and like so many King novels, follows the experience of a writer, Ben Mears, played by Starsky and Hutch star at the time, David Soule. Since childhood, Mears has had a minor obsession or curiosity about the Marsden House, a mansion from his hometown in Salem's Lot, Maine. The home has been rumored to be haunted and has now been vacant for 20 years, and Mears wants to rent it out and write a book on it, feverishly pushed by a vision he once had as a child of the original owner hanging himself in the home. But Mears has been beaten to the punch. A curious antiques dealer, Richard Straker, and his alleged business partner, Kurt Barlow, have moved into the Marsden house. Straker, played by renowned English actor James Mason, has I'm a bad guy with evil intentions written all over his ghostly mustached face, accompanied by nicely pressed suits and the most fashionable of accessories. As for his business partner, Mr. Barlow, he's mentioned all the time, but never seen. (laughs) That's because, spoiler alert, 
He's the master. If you've seen the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series, think of a more grotesque version of that master, the head vampire, the one from which all other vampires are born. In the Salem's Lot book, Barlow is cultured and human-looking, not this total speechless monster that we get in this movie version. And this could be annoying for purists of the book, but I love the change. Visually, it's much more terrifying, and the book only needs the reader to create the terror in their mind. The movie needed this sexless, non-charming, non-Dracula-like, totally more Nosferatu-inspired creature. It gives the movie such unexpected, immediate horror, and it makes the business partner, Straker, the voice for this vampire, much like the relationship we see in 1985's Fright Night. And you know, Fright Night must have also ripped off Evil Ed's crossburn to the head from Salem's Lot, too. As a lover of the kind of now semi-stale vampire genre, I adore how evilness is depicted in the newly born vampires, as well as the freakishness of the master. He's nightmare material even over 40 years later. The uncommonly seen curvature of vampire teeth and, and blue skin have just burrowed their way into my brain's most deep-seated affairs. Okay, I'm jumping ahead a little. Amongst this mere story of figuring out why the Marston house calls to him is all of the small town drama in Salem's Lot. There's an extramarital affair, a drunken abusive husband, kids playing in the forest at night, a town drunk bullied by police and grave diggers who still get spooked, and even innocent young love. So basically, there's quite a few characters who come into play and rumors at every turn through the story. Though David Soule and James Mason were the film's stars, you may recognize more recent famous faces like Jeffrey Lewis, an actor who'd been around forever, seemingly in so many movies and TV shows, also father to Juliette Lewis, the incomparable Fred Willard, who we love and discussed back in our Best in Show episode, and coming in with a fairly significant supporting role is Bonnie Bedelia, before she was John McClane's ex in Die Hard or Harrison Ford's chilling wife in Presumed Innocent. And if you're like me, seeing these guys in roles from 1979 add an extra layer to their bodies of work. Salem's Lot had a hell of a time figuring out the adaptation before Paul Monash came in. The studio originally wanted this movie to be a feature film, but condensing it was just nearly impossible, thus a two-night miniseries. That original thought might have had something to do with the producer wanting Toby Hooper to direct it after he caught a screening of Texas Chainsaw. Hooper pushed the envelope as much as possible and added in some incredible creep factors, framing setups, and lengthy shots that are effective in making the audience feel unsettled. Obviously, King is the master behind this story, but Hooper transferred the visual components really well, whether through the monstrous look of the master, the persistent haunting vibe, and aside from Amanda Bierce's frighteningly effective makeup at the end of Fright Night, gosh, how many times can I reference that movie in relation to Salem's Lot? Um, the other vampire moment which haunts my dreams comes from this movie, and that is the multiple times we see a vampiric demon child floating outside a window, lightly scratching at the glass. This vision has never left me, and Hooper must have known that it was effective because it's a good one and he shows it more than once in the film. But get ready to need a fainting couch tune, because this score goes for the dramatics. It pierces the ears at times. I had to turn down the volume because Stan, my dog, woke up from a nap. But even though it is jarring at times, it's effective in making you pay attention to every detail. Those all-knowing glances and stares get their time to shine due to the score. 
There are a few different versions of this movie, too. A two-hour theatrical release, which I owned on VHS, and I didn't know that there were all these versions, but I noticed that my VHS was a different length than the one I got on Blu-ray, which is the full three hours. There's a European version and then, like, a really cut-down, much, much shorter version. For your money, go with the Blu-ray or DVD version because not only is it the original miniseries, but it also includes Hooper's true vision, containing many scenes that were cut out for TV. There were a few times that I was watching it and forgot that fact that there were these scenes added in and thought, damn, that was on TV? There were just two moments, I think, in the movie that just seemed a little bit over the edge of like, oh, that was rather jarring. I really did enjoy this revisit to Salem's Lot, but remember, you're watching a three-hour movie from the 70s, not a three-hour Marvel movie that contains so much action for the human eye to capture. It takes a second to get going, but only keeps gaining steam. The creepy moments, people who barely fight back against vampires, plus the small town drama. It's just great to watch a movie that obviously influenced horror films to come after it, while also elevating the vampire genre beyond what had come before it. This is uh, one of those movies that you uh, kept mentioning through the years, and I think a couple Halloweens ago I watched it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it has some definite scares. I was... Uh, Less familiar with this movie growing up and more familiar with A Return to Salem's Lot, the Larry oh, really? Cohen film. Yeah, I really, when I think that came out in 87 and yeah. was less of a TV movie type vibe. I actually don't think I've seen Return. It's worth checking out. This does feel like a TV movie at times. I think I was telling you off mic that there are moments where people are attacked by the vampire that you don't see. You just see the hand come up and it's a freeze frame and then a zoom in to the person getting attacked. Like it's it has... Some moments that feel like a TV yeah. movie, but it doesn't take away from yeah, the reality. It's a commercial break. Yeah, spot. exactly. Totally commercial break moments. All right, Justin, it is your turn. Please remind us all about White Noise. So I was kind of surprised to find out that White Noise was a sleeper hit when it came out in 2005 because it is not a movie that was on my radar. And I think about three years ago is when I found the streaming and really enjoyed it. Despite its flaws, I think this movie is a solid entry in the deceased communicating with the living from the other side genre. And for the most part, this is a movie that I think stands on the shoulders of Michael Keaton's performance. If it was a different actor, I don't know how well this movie would have held together, but the movie's worth watching if you're a Michael Keaton fan. It's a pretty simple story. Michael Keaton plays an architect called Jonathan Rivers. His wife disappears. The news reports and everything pretty much think that it's a car accident. She's a famous book author, so it's getting a lot of news coverage. Eventually, we see time elapse, and he's sort of like accepted the fact that his wife has died. A mysterious man contacts Michael Keaton's character and says he's been hearing the voice of his recently deceased wife. And he said, you should contact me. And of course, Michael Keaton is like, get away from me, crazy person, you know, stop disturbing me. But eventually he gets curious and goes to find out that this man does all these audio recordings. And the movie starts to settle into a small portion of explaining electronic voice phenomenon or EVP, which is people that claim that they hear voices from the dead through electronic devices, whether it be a TV or old tape recorder. And there's quite a few people that believe this that feel like they actually have recordings from voices of people who have died. Michael Keaton believes that he hears his wife through one of these recordings that this man has. That man essentially dies pretty quickly, and then the movie starts taking on a mysterious vibe. Michael Keaton kind of becomes obsessed with listening to his wife's voice and he kind of takes over what this other guy was doing, takes all his equipment. They don't really explain any of that stuff, 
but uh, he kind of sets up shop and starts recording all the stuff and like trying to find voices and then eventually starts uh, seeing some disturbing images and voices that aren't his wife. That's where the movie kind of takes a, a left turn and it becomes almost like a dead zone type movie where he is seeing people's images before they actually die and is almost like seeing the future and can possibly save some people from dying that's where I feel like the movie um, you know I kind of started losing a little bit of interest it does sum itself up pretty nicely and again Michael Keaton I think is like the driving force in this movie I really wish this movie would have stayed with talking about the EVP like the electronic voice phenomenon because some of that stuff is actually pretty creepy and I think the most interesting but I get it this movie wanted to do like almost like a murder mystery and kind of goes really, really crazy toward the end. Um, but this is another one of my, I watched this on a Sunday afternoon in October. Perfect. You want something a little scary that has like a creepy vibe for the season, but you don't want to um, be like full on terrorized and like kind of scarred, you know, for the rest of your afternoon. This is a nice one to put on. And I think it fits nicely if you want to do like a double feature or something with Poltergeist. It has like a lot of the same elements And there's a couple of good scares in this one Got kind of made me jump. You know, I'm not a hater on jump scares, especially if it's in the afternoon and uh, when I'm like the most relaxed, most likely that it's going to get me to jump out of my seat. I can't remember the ending to this, but I do remember being surprised that I liked this movie a lot. Well, I I don't want to spoil. It gets really wild. I don't want to spoil everything, but uh, Michael Keaton's arms and legs get broke. He's sort of like just gets like folded like a. Yeah, now it's coming back to yeah. me. Yeah, it gets pretty wild. Yeah. Not in a bad way. Not in a bad way. No. Well, thanks for that reminder about white noise. Now I need to go back and watch the ending. Uh, I mentioned that it was a huge it made like 90 million dollars at the box office, which I was I thought was wild. And it was one of those movies I guess they like dumped early in the year whenever there's just a bunch of junk coming out and it happened to be like a success. <laughs> but you know, this movie has an 8% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I find to be just wildly insane. Yeah, I mean, that's a little on. cruel. That's, it, 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 no, and and there's untrue. bad movies, and then there's bad movies, and this is does not deserve an eight percent. It's like no, not at all. No, not at all. So don't uh, let the negative reviews scare you away from a fairly decent movie to watch uh, during the month of October. Well, those are our picks of the week: White Noise and Salem's Lot. Here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. This may be the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist, but it also happens to be 40 years ago when David Letterman took a risky dip into late-night television. And guess who was right there with him? It sure wasn't NBC, the network which ended up airing his program for 11 years. Nope, 
It was Letterman's first official late-night guest, our buddy Billy Murray, who gave it his all, and from watching this debut episode, I'd say he helped set the standard for the show's oddball humor. But even Bill felt the weight of Dave's late-night venture, and that maybe this could turn into a one-night-only affair for both he and Dave. The episode of Letterman's Late Night debuted on February 1st of 1982, and would be an event to remember, for better or worse. If the show was going to get cancelled right away, Bill told Yahoo News in 2022, I thought that maybe this would be the one I'd like to go out on if it was going to get canceled after one night. Looking back now, Bill recalls a rather alarming detail that would rattle any show host, producer, coordinators, crew members, etc. I kind of disappeared, Bill said. I came in and sort of stood around and then disappeared and showed up a few minutes before I was going to go on. That just added seven or eight layers of tension to that night's performance. Show talent coordinators Sandra Furton and Kathy Vasipoli were freaking out a little. We basically put out an internal APB, Furton said. So as the show was starting, everyone behind the scenes was looking through rooms, hallways, everywhere that Bill could be lurking. Then the worst news dropped. Furton found out that Bill had left the building. But soon into the show airing, through the same stage door that was once his entrance for Saturday Night Live at 30 Rock Plaza, here comes our old buddy. And when Furton and Vasipoli asked where Bill had been, without a thought, Bill said, I had to go home and feed my cat. Bill's allergic to cats, so I'm inclined to call bullshit on this one. A few years later, Letterman went on record saying, That first show might have been a touch too unstructured. When we asked Bill to do our first show, Dave said, he said he'd like to come in and do something different. Could he come up to the office and talk with the writers and see what they could come up together? Dave thought, great. So Bill got there in the afternoon while Dave and head writer Meryl Marcot were out shooting something for the show. One problem, though. Bill brought, quote, six half-gallon bottles of whatever tequila was on sale, and he and the entire staff proceeded to get shit-faced all afternoon. Dave continues, When I got back, the place was in shambles. Everyone's dangerously drunk, all the lamps were hidden because Bill had convinced them that the fluorescent lights were draining their vitamin E, nothing had been written, and the only explanation I could get out of anyone was, Bill was here. As it ended up, Bill didn't want to do any of the things that they had finally prepared, and the unscripted vibe which comes through is absolutely a beautiful sight to see. Out of all his Letterman appearances, this is Bill's most unbridled because he's flying off the cuff. It's goofy, confrontational, ridiculous, starting off innocent enough with Dave razzing Bill a bit for playing with pocket lint balls during the interview. Then Bill lets loose with his comic combativeness which reigned over the entire first segment. I swear, Letterman, if it's the last thing I do... I'm going to make your life a living hell, Bill says, needlessly trying to ramp up tension with Dave. It seems like they had a during commercial regroup together because the second segment is Bill explaining that his combativeness is due to assault deficiency. And after coming back from the break, he's just apologizing to Dave over and over and then ends up showing a video of his new pet that he's been keeping in his backyard, which turns out to be obvious stock footage of panda bears at the zoo. Bill pretend narrating how this is his backyard. It's just, a, uh, it's so absurd. And if you were ever a fan of Letterman's show, this is 100% the style of humor for what would follow Letterman for the next 40 years. And the silliness goes even further. Bill ends his segment by performing the hit song Physical by Olivia Newton-John with a full-body performance, singing, aerobicizing, and even roping in a crew member to get physical with him. It really is wild and just TV we don't get to see anyone do today. All of it. This is an improv performer who's giving it everything. All over the map, manic, and absolutely brilliant for Dave's first late night episode.
Sure, band leader and longtime pal of Bill's, Paul Schaefer, knew that the Newton John song was coming, and the band learned the song that day, but it's not like they had rehearsed with Bill and could plan for what the man had in store. Bless that YouTube, because you can find this entire episode out there. It's some of the funniest unscripted stuff you'll see from late night TV. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to track down that YouTube clip tonight. Yeah, that entire episode is, is worth it. Well, thank you so much for that Murray moment. Of course. So we should probably uh, wrap things up here. So there's something that we mentioned earlier that was sort of a final thought, a controversial thing that surrounds the poltergeist, and that's the quote-unquote curse of the poltergeist. But generally when you find information on poltergeist articles and whatnot, they talk about this you know, supposed curse on the franchise because with each film somebody has passed away it's really kind of bleak really when you think about it and we chose to really not go into that um and that's our controversial thing is that we we feel it's in bad taste that this whole curse thing exists and that it's feels kind of exploitive especially because heather o'rourke passed away at such a young age and when there's a child death involved it's like i don't know it seems like just a little sacrilege so yeah and dominique dunn wasn't much older and she was murdered by her boyfriend shortly after poltergeist came out it's just really just tragic events that it feels yeah just um i don't know rude to say that it's due to the curse of a movie and that steven spielberg it's because he used real skeletons like it's not it's it's a bunch of tragic ill-timed events yeah so that's all we're going to say on that uh we wanted to end things on a light note though and kind of give some recommendations uh for this week if you are interested in seeing some other ghost story type movies uh, we have a few recommendations and uh and actually a newer movie you know we we do watch new movies folks we we do occasionally see movies that uh (laughs) have been recently released and one of those movies is The Night House with Rebecca Hall, which came out during the pandemic. I've seen this movie twice. I actually saw it in the theater. And did you really? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and um, it was a very surprise. Actually, it was like a sneak preview type, one of those deals where you get free tickets and you go there. And I just went into the movie completely not knowing anything about it and yeah. uh, was really pleasantly surprised. It's kind of a haunting film and a very similar theme with that movie to a lot of these ghost story type movies i put it on because it just looked like a random ghost movie and i needed to work on some podcast stuff and just to have a movie on in the background and i was totally sucked into it and admittedly at first was like ah crap i put on a good movie but i mean really this was it was a wonderful pleasant surprise very very creepy i even texted my mom after that and she watched it with her best friend and yeah it's pretty much across the board it's a enjoyable yeah scary movie a lot of newer horror films have i call them depression horror mm-hmm. because there's generally a very sad tale and this one digs a little deep into that so if that's it if does. that's a trigger for you you know i would avoid it but it's still a really as far as i'm concerned in the last three or four years uh, one of the more um creepy atmospheric movies i've seen one that really does make you question what's the reality without using that as a cheap ploy yeah. that, that sometimes happens in some movies. So probably one of my favorite ghost story related movies of the last 20 years is Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak which came out Ooh. in 2015 and this movie is criminally underseen. I uh, hadn't even heard of it 
after it had had its theatrical release, it was pitched as a straight-up horror film, but it's more of a gothic love story. His attention to detail, this house that is a main character in the movie, is stunning. Uh, this is just a extremely visual, beautifully told gothic love story that does have some creepy elements. I can't recommend this movie enough if you haven't seen it. It's one of my favorite Del Toro movies. I know he's done a lot of really critically acclaimed movies, but this one I feel like didn't get seen by people. It was just mismarketed, but I highly recommend finding it if you can and checking it out. I think I've seen that streaming and I haven't had a good reason to just randomly choose it, but now I will. Now it's going on the list. What do you got? Um, this movie, that was another, just, I randomly picked it because it was streaming and that's called the autopsy of Jane Doe. Have you ever seen that with Brian Cox and Emile Hirsch? I've heard of it and I've seen the trailer, but I haven't seen it. I'll always give a, a chance to a movie that has a limited cast because it seems like it's, I mean, it's putting so much on two or three people and this movie, uh, does just that. It's this father and son team of coroners and they're doing this autopsy on this unidentified woman and some weird stuff starts to happen. And, uh, you know, when you're two coroners, you're probably not rattled by too much. But um, it's extremely creepy, isolating. And, I mean, if you're not easily grossed out by autopsy type of stuff, um, it's it's one that's a solid creeper. It does look pretty creepy. Yeah. Another movie that you turned me on to, wildly popular film that I just kind of missed when it came out. But a few years ago, you really... We're talking it up, and I, I watched it that night. was uh, Robert Zemeckis's What Lies Beneath. Oh, duh, yeah. From Oof. 2000, and really a great oh, good. performance between Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford, and seeing Harrison Ford in a somewhat different role that you normally see him in. That one uh That one give, it gives gi- me it gives, chills it, you bringing it, it, it up. Does. <laughs> it, that, that one is definitely gives me chills, for sure. It has enough of the newer kind of... Uh, haunting vibe yeah. but but that old 90s drama mm-hmm. that, that's coming into like yeah. a newer era i will always watch that movie if it's on and a couple more notable ones that actually the early 2000s was a good time for these type of movies there's the others which came out 2001 all right, all right. as well as uh, 13 ghosts which kind of has that late 90s wb stars mixed in with mm-hmm. high fx you know, concept type movie. Um, that one maybe hasn't aged the best, but I still find it pretty enjoyable and it's got some scares to it. Early 2000s uh, kind of haunting movies. How do you feel about Drag Me to Hell? Oh, love it. I find that either people that have seen it absolutely love it and it's one of their favorites, but other people have never even heard of it. That one's one that's worth seeking out if you've yeah. never that seen it. That movie's uh, bonkers. I actually showed that <laughs> yeah. in my backyard last Did year. Did you really? I don't think you came to that screening. But, uh, How? It's so loud. But my <laughs> wife, Mary, hadn't seen it. Gross out stuff she can't handle. And I, I, we, I, put, on the, I put on the unedited <laughs> version. And I had the sound kind of cranked. And there's a lot of pretty gross, yeah. squishy type sounds and stuff. And there's a few times where she was like almost starting to gag watching the movie. But, I, but at, at the end, she was like, man, that was a really good movie. It was exciting. And it, Sam it's very Ra- visceral. You can't go wrong with Sam Raimi, though, to That's be true. honest. I'm going to throw in an old one that maybe some people out there haven't seen but carnival of souls from 62 solidly one of the creepiest movies i've ever seen 
I'll give a quick shout out to a friend of mine who passed away, Pat Blakemore, who turned me on to that movie 20 years ago and uh, tried to creep me out with it for years, bringing up things that happened in it, and it always worked. For a movie that's damn near 60 years old, it's still quite effective. Yes, it is. And even now, I think back on it, and I'm like, do I even know what actually was the truth of what happened in that movie? It's so bizarre and strange and haunting and will will creep into your subconscious every now and again. So plenty of recommendations for you for the final week of October. I'm always sad to see it go. We hope you've enjoyed our episode on the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist. We hope that this has invigorated you to revisit Poltergeist if it's been a while. And like I said at the top of this episode, if you've never seen it, that is a shame. That is a damn shame, and you need to correct that. And if you'd like to join our newly growing Joe Beth Williams fan club, uh, feel free to drop us a line. Um, I'm sure we'll be getting some marketing together. And hey, Ms. Williams, if you're out there uh, listening, just know that um, Justin and I will, you know, if you, if you need anything, just call us, let us know. We'll probably even work for free, honestly. Yeah, we love you, Joe Beth. Thanks, Joe Beth. Well, that's it for Poltergeist. Please do follow us on social media if you haven't already. We try to keep up with it best we can. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We have our own YouTube channel. Please subscribe. You can check out all of our old episodes. They're all on there. You can also find them on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. And if you'd like to contact us for any reason, you know, recommend a movie, tell us you like the episode, you can always reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. And now that we're coming out of our horror movie month, we're getting back to other genres. And we haven't done a drama in a drama. little while. I know. And so <laughs> we're going with a classic. It's the 30th anniversary of A Few Good Men. Strangely, we haven't done a Tom Cruise movie. We did Magnolia, but we haven't done like a Tom Cruise yeah. movie. And yeah. we've done quite a few Rob Reiner films. So this is going to be a nice area for us to live in for a couple weeks to be rewatching A Few Good Men and digging into it. So look forward to that in November. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you guys. Happy Halloween.